listening to Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. Here's your host, Aaron Broverman. Godspeed, old chum. Hello, fanboys and fangirls. It's your host, Aaron Broverman. Welcome to another episode of Speech Bubble. Today, we have someone in that I've been looking forward to talk to for a long time. We know each other quite well. She is the publisher at Ad Astra Comics. Uh, They're comics with sort of a social conscious, a political conscious, people that have something to say politically. So I want to uh, welcome uh, Nicole Marie. Nicole, how are you? Oh man, I'm good. It's so nice to be back in Toronto. What is, what is your last name these days? Uh, Burton. Burton, okay, cool. <laughs> yeah, I roll with Burton these Okay, days. cool, awesome. Because <laughs> I, remember, I remember last time I talked to you, you had you had a different last name, so I just wanted to make sure it's, true. it's all good. It's true. I feel like Nicole Marie is pretty much what I've kept with throughout my life but it's like a weird thing about going through life changes and like being a part of a blended family I don't know it like becomes a sort of a search for identity and I guess I've been doing a little bit of that lately that's awesome yeah you're you're like going across Canada right now aren't you oh man we just got back in May no end of April we just got back end of April okay what were you what were you doing so in December, uh, at Astro Comics, which at the time was two people, we're now four. We've been experiencing excellent growth this year. Uh, the two of us decided that we wanted to go on a North American tour. Uh, we realized that everything we were doing could be done mobile by car. So we packed up all of our books with our freshest publishing project in tow, and we just hit the road. And um You know, I've spent a lot of time in activism before I was involved in the comic scene, and I've been involved in the comic scene for a couple of years now, at least, Um, and uh, just started to dig into those contexts, you know, took out the, you know, the symbolic Rolodex. And uh, everywhere we were going, I was just like, okay, who do I know in this area? Let's give them a call. Let's see what they're up to. Let's hang out. Let's do an event. Let's go to other people's events. Let's just like see what's going on uh, in all these different cities. So we did that over six months. We went to, we had events in 25 different cities. We traveled about 6,000 miles, added some numbers to the odometer in my car. Yeah, just like had a million conversations. It was awesome. So what kind of events? Like panel discussions, guest speakers? Yeah, uh, a little bit of everything. And it kind of just depended on what hosts were interested in doing. Some places we were tapped into what was happening in an activist community. And so we would actually go and do events with activists to be like, hey, comics are a thing. You know, read you check out these comics like you're interested in environmentalism. Check out these environmental comics or you're interested in poverty and economic justice. Look at these comics that talk about um, economic justice. Uh, And then other times we would link in with the comics community or a book community and we would be like, hey, social justice is a thing. Did you know that there are comics that are about social justice issues? If you want to know more about environmentalism, here's a book. And it just kind of felt like we were helping different communities connect the dots. And it felt really exciting to be able to show people um, these really great books that they didn't know were out there. Yeah, so it was kind of like a promotional tour for Ad Astra, but at the same time, you were exposing different communities to different comics that they weren't really used to seeing. Yeah, and the nice thing about it is that like we like to talk about political comics as a genre. So it's not like we just have like a table where we sell books with like the Ad Astra Comics logo on it. You know, like we have 
four books that we've published now, but like there are a bunch of other books that are published by other people and that are by other people. And we like to be able to sell those too, to be like, you know, it's not just us. Like a lot of people are doing this and um, you should check them out too. What kind of books would people recognize from your slate maybe? Or what are the four that you've, that you've hmm, done? That people would recognize. So our first big publishing project was actually last September. This time last year, we were just like, in the middle of the shit. Can I say yeah, yeah. middle on this show? Okay, cool. Yeah, we were doing a crowdfunder for a North American edition of a book that had been le- released in India. It was an anthology of comics by women who had gotten together in New Delhi in a week-long workshop to produce comics, just little short comics about gender discrimination. It's a really cool project. A lot of the women involved were artists or professional illustrators, but none of them had done a comic before. And it's really amazing to see what they were able to come up with in such a short period of time. Very nuanced pieces of work about everything from catcalling in the street to double standards in the education system to the lack of jobs for women and like the weird, creepy screening experience of going through a job process as an Indian woman. Like people ask you if like you are married, they ask you um, like what kind of family you come from, like trying to get a sense of like caste. People will ask you if you're planning on having kids soon because they don't want to hire somebody who's going to be pregnant. Things that would otherwise be illegal here to ask somebody during a job interview. Yeah, I guess so now that you mention it. (laughs) So we had this cool project and um We actually connected with the publisher from India over Twitter, an amazing piece of modern technology right there. We had never crowdfunded this much money before. We were asking for $8,000 and we were like, oh my God, that's so much money. Um, And uh, it ended up getting picked up by a bunch of media outlets. Um, Huffington Post Canada covered it, uh, BuzzFeed India covered it, and at the 11th hour, we got um, a little spot on BBC World News Online, wow. which is just like, you know, a, a tremendous coverage. You know, I've never been so excited about like two seconds of our time, <laughs> but it really uh, helped the project. We also had a lot of um, uh, people like South Asian women bloggers who like to blog about diversity in comics, who uh, championed the book as like, a, you know, a great example of how not only how we need diversity in comics, but also how feminism can be intersectional and international in scope. It's not just about like middle-class white women in North America. Right. So the project did great. Um, Since then... What's uh, it called? Oh, sorry. It's called uh, Drawing the Line, Indian Women Fight Back. Okay, cool. Um, Yeah, and it's a really bright, colorful book. It's sort of like bright green and bright pink, and it really stands out on a bookshelf. We were actually... I was just at Pages, Page and Panel earlier today at the Reference Library, and I was able to like spot it on a shelf. It, It was really cool. After that, we published uh, a book that was an anthology, also a re-release. It's been out of print for about seven years. An anthology of comics journalism about Canadian mining companies, talking about sort of human rights uh, abuses that often happen with mining and extraction projects, and um, also the impact on um, Indigenous communities, because mining often takes place in Indigenous communities. 
the project that we're working on right now is um, another re-release of a book called War in the Neighborhood, which is by a radical comic artist out of New York City who did an incredible, incredible graphic novel about the gentrification of his neighborhood in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, and it's just like a slice of New York history told beautifully in a graphic narrative form. That one we're working on right now. That sounds amazing. Yeah. As you can see, I just feel like, you know, I talk endlessly about what we've been up to. We've just been so busy and it's been great. That's awesome. Yeah, I want to really introduce people to like who you are and how you got into this. So I want to kind of go back to like, you know, your early life and just, you know, tell people a little bit about who you are. Um, Where were you born? Yeah, I was born in Urbana, Illinois. It's a twin city in the center of the state. It's about three and a half hours south of Chicago. um, And it's where the University of Illinois is. So despite the fact that it's in the middle of nowhere, it is a university town. So it was an interesting place to to be growing up as a young kid. I moved around a lot as a kid from a family where there was divorce. And, you know, uh, there was I'm the kid of a blended family. So I moved around a fair bit. I moved from um, Illinois to different areas of Vancouver every couple of years where my dad was a professor and uh, was UBC taking different or? jobs. Yeah, he was um, he was a forestry professor at UBC. And then um, he started working privately for a bit and now works at the University of Northern British Columbia in um, Terrace. And then my mom was a farmer and a substitute teacher. So meanwhile, my father's side of the family moved all over BC. My mom's side of the family moved around the Midwest, going to different places. So after Illinois, I lived in Kansas. And then, sorry, this is not making my story any clearer. That's cool. Um, (laughs) I like it. But I went to high school in Lawrence, Kansas, which is also a university town. Really, really cool town, um, if anybody is familiar with it or driving through. It's a town that has pretty much had a killer music scene and an amazing art scene since like the 70s. So it was a great place to grow up and be a kid interested in in activism and in art. And then I moved to Vancouver after that when I graduated. Cool. In terms of your growing up life, how did you become sort of socially aware and politically aware and become involved in the activist community? You know, it's funny, I was just reflecting on this the other day, and something kind of hit me. And you and I, we've known each other for years now, three years, I think. And um, I don't think if you had asked me that question three years ago, I would have been able to answer it as clearly. But uh, recently, I was trying to think about where my relationship with, you know, quote, unquote, political comics started. Mm -hmm. I realized that I was 12 years old, And I was just coming into thinking about what it meant to be Jewish. I was like reading books. I was reading like Number the Stars. I was reading Elie Wiesel. I was reading about, you know, Jewish history and culture. And um, I was leafing through a scholastic catalog that had just been passed out in my grade seven class. And, you know, this is like such an exciting moment for like a middle school kid is like when school stops for just a minute and you can like leaf through a catalog of like tons of interesting books. In the bottom corner of one of the pages was an advertisement for a book that specifically stated that you needed your parent to co-sign to order it. (laughs) And I was like, I'm getting this book. Absolutely. (laughs) Like, I think it was that warning that like sold the book for me. Naturally, I, uh, I, I ordered it. And two weeks later, I got my first copy of Art Spiegelman's Mouse. 
And that book changed my life. Tell the people how Mouse uh, changed your life because it changed a lot of lives. I, I think it changed mine. I'm Jewish too. Oh yeah, so that's, oh de- yeah, definitely, I forgot. <laughs> definitely, Mouse was a huge, yeah. huge thing for me as well. Yeah. So it was after I had read some other books, and I just thought, well, cool. Like, what an interesting idea to not only draw a graphic narrative, but like for it to be for it to really embrace the comic book medium and portray people symbolically differently. So this idea of Jews being portrayed as mice and um, Nazis being portrayed as cats really kind of without having to say anything really kind of like sets the stage for like the tense interactions that are happening in the book, you know, like, you are immediately aware aware of the power relationship that exists if a mouse goes into, say, like a government office and is asking for a form and the person behind the desk is say a cat. It's just kind of like, you don't feel like you're on equal footing. Um, you you immediately you recognize that. the antagonism absolutely. in that relationship because it's the predator prey thing that yeah. everybody knows, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I felt like it was it was something. It just sank its hooks into me, and I was like, "This is a great way of telling a story." And um, it's interesting because I feel like it was that search for trying to get in touch with like my culture and my heritage and my background that put me on this course you know, to like discover not just comics, but also just like social justice in general. It, it it really, I it was when I started reading about the persecution of Jews in the Holocaust, where I was like, oh, you know, homosexuals were persecuted, Roma people were persecuted, people with mental health issues were persecuted, radicals, you know, um, socialists and communists and anarchists were persecuted. And that really led me to thinking about like, well, what does this all mean? And that just turned into an endless journey that I guess I'm still on today. And it's really interesting to think about how much of an impact that quest for cultural identity um, has has impacted my life. Yeah, that's crazy. Like, I always said that, like, if I grew up during the time of the Holocaust, like, it would have been stepped to the left, like, immediately. It's a really frightening thing to think about. And I think it it really grips a lot of people. I know that maybe I can only speak for myself, but I do feel like um, it is one of those big moments that make you feel like there are principles that we don't necessarily interface with on a daily basis, but they are principles that we live and die by and that we, you know, will will fight for with our lives. And I think that a part of that is you know, having a sense of power and dignity in the world that we live in. And I feel like that that issue does exist today for for many different kinds of people. And I like having a job where it's my job to like search for those fights. Yeah, totally. And uh, and and help them uh, come into the light a little bit. So, how did Ad Astra come to be? Like, like what? I mean, maybe mm. I'm fast forwarding a little bit, but how did you sort of conceive of it and 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 start it? Well, I mean, if I can connect it to earlier on, I did start to collect comics when I was a teenager, like a lot of people do. And um, a few of them I did hang on to for a pretty long period of time. You know, if I was like sorting through some old books or like some old documents, I would come across like an old comic that I had found as a teenager about a certain issue. And I'd be like, oh, that's super cool. Like, I should figure out something to do with that. And uh, that just happened, I think, enough times that I was like, maybe I should do something about this. 
Um, so I spent a lot of time at the time I was commuting a fair bit to go to work as a waitress. And um, it was like an hour and a half there and an hour and a half back. And I just spent a lot of time on the bus and on the subway, just like kind of thinking, what is it that I want to do with comics? Like, what would this look like? And so I think it was in 2011 that I finally set up a WordPress blog. I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to set up a blog and I'm just going to write my thoughts about political comics and how I think they could be useful in movements for social justice, um, like in activism, maybe in a, like an advocacy campaign. And just sort of like relate my experience as much as I can. You know, I've been an activist for over 10 years. I feel like, you know, that must count for something. Mm. <laughs> and uh, and I started doing that. I started taking out books from the library. Whenever I had like a, you know, a nice fat paycheck, I would like go into the beguiling or I would always save up for the Toronto Comic Arts Festival and for different speaking events at the Toronto Library. And um, just started reading through some of the books, different books that took on different subjects, writing down my thoughts and talking about why I I felt like they were important. And it was in 2013 that I started noticing that crowdfunding was really blowing up. And I was making okay money at that time. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to start trying to figure out how I can support these projects a little bit more. Like, I don't just want to buy a book, I want to see if I can help a little bit more. And I started thinking more about hey, can I turn this into a business? Is there like a way of, you know, supporting the creators and also ensuring that all of my friends are reading all of these cool comics and also giving myself like a place to like talk about how cool these comics are? I was like, I think I'm creating something in my head. It was in May of 2013 that the company officially launched. We did a launch party for... Matt Bores, who's a political cartoonist out of Portland, Oregon. Uh, he had just put out a book called Life Begins at Incorporation. <laughs> it's a collection of political cartoons about everything from, you know, access to abortion in the United States to Occupy. Uh, he went to Afghanistan as an unembedded cartoon journalist with Ted Rawl, another political cartoonist, and just sort of like drew what he saw there and had a few interviews with Afghans and talked about the drone program and talked about, you know, the US and Canadian presence in Afghanistan. Actually, I don't think he includes Canadian. I think he was around US areas. So just a correction there. Yeah. So we did a launch party. We talked about his work and I used that as a launch point for uh, a distro where I had gathered together about 20 or 30 different titles of books that I thought were really great and uh, just started selling some books. And it went great. In recent years, we've kind of evolved a little bit. We're not focusing so much on retailing anymore. Um, we've moved into publishing and original comics production. A part of the reason for that is that a it's kind of more it's more sustainable in the long term for us. Running a business, a retail business, is super hard. Um, there's a lot of logistics involved. There's a lot of literal and figurative heavy lifting involved, and we feel like now that we are kind of more embedded in the community, we've gotten a better sense of you know we've been asking ourselves, what do people need? What do comics creators need? What do publishers need? What do retailers need? What do readers need? And we feel like with political comics, there are a lot of holes. Before we started, there was no dedicated publisher um, exclusively focused on printing social justice comics, even though comics are one of the fastest growing sections of American libraries. Uh, they are being brought into classrooms for educational materials at unprecedented levels. 
and social justice. We are in an, we are in an era of social justice conversations happening right now about every single intersection, whether it's about race or ability or gender. You can look at anything right now in a political lens and you can find other people online or in communities um, that want to have that conversation. And I feel like people are more aware than they ever have been uh, about the issues. Like I get called out on things or, you know, told things that I never would have, like Mm. not even five years ago. Like that wouldn't have been an issue. Totally agree. Totally agree. And um, one of my favorite illustrations of this is that somebody tweeted, 2008, uh, watching my favorite film. This is the best film ever. 2013, rewatching my favorite film. This film is hella problematic and has these problems. (laughs) You know, it's just like in the last five years, we have started to look more critically at a lot of things. And, you know, I do think that that requires... A little more emotional labor. I think it requires, you know, sometimes it feels like a bummer to like turn on Ghostbusters and be like, wow, this movie that I loved as a kid and watched 1500 times centers the experience of like a creepy white man who like stalks Sigourney Weaver for like the entire movie. <laughs> you know, it's just like, yeah, that's a fucking bummer. Like, yeah. I, I love this movie. It's not to say that it doesn't involve some heavy lifting and that it can't sometimes be frustrating. But overall, I think it's a very good thing. And I think it's a thing that is bringing people into conversations when they didn't feel like those conversations they didn't feel welcome in those conversations before if that makes any sense um i feel like nerd culture geek culture um comic books is like a perfect example it's like in some ways i feel like it's like the quintessential examples like when you think of a nerd what do you picture in your mind like if somebody says oh yeah i have a friend they're a total nerd like right how do you imagine them it's like somebody with glasses right and like I don't know, like skinny and small and nasally voice sort of thing. And like probably white. Yeah, probably Probably white. white And like maybe probably a guy Yeah, and not a girl. Yeah. And it's it's interesting that that space has really, that space has really opened up. You know, there's a lot of people who are like, you know, I'm a nerd. And I felt like that was a thing that, you know, I got like persecuted for when I was in grade school. And I just never felt like comic books were for me because I'm queer or I'm, you know, a person of color or I'm a woman. And so it's very, very cool to see that space open and for that forum to become more and more inclusive all the time. And it feels like the things that the comics community are dealing with is like a microcosm of what everyone is dealing with. Yeah, I'd have to agree. Like, because we have, you know, sort of the old guard of comics geekdom trying to hold on to what it meant to be a comic fan. And then we have untold diversity Mm. sort of moving. I don't want to say against that, but they're, they're moving in and some people don't like it. Some people do. You know what I mean? And when people talk about trolls... (laughs) <laughs> they used to talk about like geeky people like in their basement. Yeah. You know, the type of people that are that are like into comics and and care to a very specific degree about pop culture and everything and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So when things like, you know, the issue of like the female casting with Ghostbusters right. comes up and stuff, it seems like 
there's a lot of sensitivity in in geek culture that's being broken down and mm-hmm. reexamined and mm-hmm. called out and that sort of thing. Well, there's an interesting term that I've sort of come to put into my vocabulary recently, and it's called gatekeeping. And I feel like I see gatekeeping. I see it in, um, you know, nerd culture stuff, but I also see it in a lot of different corners of of society and culture. So it's not just nerds, but I definitely feel like trolling in particular is sort of a part of that gatekeeping idea that, you know, this is this this subculture is ours. It's not yours. Quit trying to make space for yourself here. Quit trying to change it. We like things the way that they are. There's a really great comic that came out a couple of I think over a year ago now. It was on the Nib, which is an online comics journalism site that uh, Matt Bors actually helped to found. Um, they're great. They do a regular curated syndication of uh, comics journalism, mostly from the States, but not entirely. And somebody did a post that was um, called The Most Hated Man on the Internet. And it was the story of a, of a cartoonist, um, older guy, kind mm-hmm. of a libertarian. So like kind of right wing, kind of left wing in, in there somewhere. Likes to talk about, you know, the big bad government and all that stuff. Right. He started posting his cartoons online and he started getting trolled really, really hard. And because of the fact that the trolling really bothered him and he responded in a way that was like, you guys need to cut this out. Like, what's wrong with you? People would just troll him even more. Right. Um, and so his work started to get picked up by, you know, like 4chan and like Redditors and people were photoshopping horrible, horrible stuff into his work. Like they were basically photoshopping his work to make him look like a white supremacist. Mm -hmm. Uh And it actually became, uh, long story short, and I don't want to give some spoilers, but he actually ended up getting asked to participate in a study in Australia from a sociology department to study trolling because they were just like, you're just like a magnet. We just like, we want to study this internet phenomenon and we feel like you are a person that we should hang around if we want to study it um but his whole thing was just like he did he just didn't understand why people wanted to act like that and i think a part of it is what has made nerd culture in the past is that there's kind of a certain amount of like people feel uneasy around nerds there's kind of like this attitude of like nerds might be creeps or nerds might, you know, have unpopular opinions or nerds might just be like really kind of like intellectually intimidating. And I feel like the trolling phenomena, if I can like have a personal hypothesis about it, (laughs) I feel like it kind of flows into that antisocial streak that exists in some nerd culture where it's just like, I'm just going to make you feel as uncomfortable as possible so that you do not hang out in my space. Right. It's weird because it's always sort of a yearning to expand the community, but there's all, but there's always also, we like the exclusivity and we like it the way that it is and that sort of thing. And like, like deep down, you know, nerds didn't like that there weren't girls. You know, you know, and that was, and that, and, you know, and that that was a struggle for them. Like they wanted like female attention and that sort of thing. But at the same time, they also liked that like this was 
our thing sort of mm-hmm. sort of thing you know what i mean yeah i mean i think that people often like their space to be occupied with people that they think are interesting and serviceable to them but then they don't want to relinquish control of that space and i think that's what we're seeing a lot with uh with mainstream comics right now right. i feel like the diversity question is slowly but surely breaking away at you know these pillars in the institu- the institutions that um, have really defined comics for decades. You know, DC, Marvel, Dark Horse, anytime a new series comes out and it has not seriously addressed the issue of diversity, it becomes a conversation topic online where it's just like, right. yet again, we have a story where it feels like there are no women who talk to each other in this story or all of the main characters are white or mm. if you ever see a person of color, it's a, just a supporting character. Right. That has led to questions about what do we mean by diversity in comics? Is it enough to just have a a main character who is a person of color? Or do we want to talk about the fact that the writer of the comic is white? Or do we want to talk about the fact that the editorial staff is all white men? It, It goes on and on. And I think that those conversations are really, I think they're really healthy. And I feel like although they may seem disruptive to some, I feel like in the end, it will end up creating a better product that is um, more appealing to a broader audience. And it is like, it's not just the diversity of comics that are changing, but it's like the diversity of the audience. It's the way that the comic shop space is is experienced Mm -hmm. like we see comic shops now with coffee shops in them and like more comfortable places to sit Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know it's a much (laughs) you know comic shops that are like run by women and Mm -hmm. and and that sort of thing so that's also happening Mm -hmm. um there seems to be this concerted effort to uh, create a space that's just for women because pe- people have like the ladies nights yeah. situation yeah which is happening in a lot of cities i know mm-hmm. that toronto's been doing it they've had it locked down for a fair bit alice quinn is just like this like force of nature who like mm-hmm. organizes these quarterly events in addition to all the other stuff she does also i'd love to give a shout out to the valkyries i don't know have you heard about the valkyries no, what are the valkyries so the valkyries are a network across north america of women who work in comic shops either owners or like retail staff who have teamed together to be able to share resources in terms of like, you know, somebody can post to like the Valkyrie network to be like, hey, there are a lot of young girls, like girls under the age of 10 coming into our comic shop and we just like don't have anything that appeals to them. What would you guys recommend? And so from that network, people can be like Lumberjanes, check out Lumberjanes or like, you know, Princess Bubblegum has like this new feature comic that you should check out. And, you know, in addition to tips for like dealing with like, you know, what if you have a guy who shows up in your store and like keeps saying things that you feel personally uncomfortable with, but like you don't want to get in trouble with your boss because you're telling somebody to like leave when they're making You know, there's all kinds of hypotheticals that uh, women in comics in the comics industry can they can share their experiences and their insights. And the Valkyries started as a group of just like a handful of women. And I think they just reached their 500th 
member uh, this summer. So congrats to them. Wow, They've that's been amazing. Blowing up. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. The, I feel like that's a good example. Oh, can I ask you a question? Sure. Where did you grow up and like what was your comic shop growing up? My comic shop yeah. was the comic shop on oh. West 4th in, in, Van- in Vancouver. Really? Okay. Uh, it's called the comic shop. I feel like I uh, haven't next, been in there. It's like uh, it's been around since like 1977. Oh, sweet. Uh, okay. Next to, on like West 4th, next to what used to be the Sophie's restaurant, but isn't, isn't yeah, there yeah, anyway? Yeah. Even moved like a little down the street. Mine was... 4th um, and Arbutus. Mine was RX Comics on Main because I, I was like an East Van girl. That was my later comic shop. Like when I go back to yeah. Vancouver to visit my family, my, my dad lives next to the Main Street's uh, Science World Skytrain oh, station. Nice. So RX is totally my comic shop and mm-hmm. my sort of hip, older, more socially conscious cousin who was reading, you know, Sandman when I was of single digit <laughs> age goes to RX Comics. So Sweet. that's sort of how mm-hmm. uh, I, you know, I went into RX as my, my, as you get older, that's like the, that's like the comic shop. For right. Me now. Yeah. yeah. I, I like to ask people like what kinds of comic shops they've been raised around. Like, I feel like there are, a couple of different flavors of comic shops, right? Like there's the kind that just has like the single issue super, they focus totally on superheroes. Maybe they have a few toys up on the wall. You know, if there are indie comics at all, they'll maybe be like on a back shelf somewhere. You know, if people are coming in looking for them, they know where to find them. And then there's like the other shops that are kind of like, maybe more like the beguiling in Toronto or like strange adventures in Halifax or, trying to think of who would be like that in Vancouver. I'm not totally sure, but I don't think there's like a dedicated kind of indie. Yeah. Is there a dedicated indie shop? I don't think there is. Necessarily not exclusively in comics. I mean, I can think of like Pulp Fiction or like Bibliophile. They right. would usually have, you know, a good graphic novel section that I used to comb through yeah. every two weeks. Even like, Zo- didn't like Zulu Records in those yeah. places have a little bit of a comic sh- section? Or yeah. Whatever? And you know what? I totally miss that. I totally miss there being comics at record shops. Right. Um, I was actually having a conversation with Seth Tabachman recently about this. So as I mentioned, Seth is the author of World War III, uh, or sorry, uh, War in the Neighborhood. He's the editor of a periodical called World War III Illustrated, which has been running out of New York since 1979. Okay. Um, he doesn't like to like boast about this, but it is one of the longest running periodical, uh, comic periodicals in the world. Um, it's been around for over 35 years. Nobody has ever been paid for the project. It's like entirely a volunteer-run labor of love, and it is a killer publication. So it's full of radical comics about different social justice issues, different life experiences, and they used to be distributed by a punk record label in the 90s. And so their comic was in every record store around the United States. And when the music industry caved, their distribution network caved because their record label went under. So it's funny to see how the impact of, you know, downfall of one industry has kind of led to, in a way, a bit of a crisis. You know, it was like kind of the predecessor to the the book industry Mm. crisis, which I think we're still in right now. I think it's safe to say that, you know, bookshops are really struggling to, and comic shops are struggling to just make sure that they can pay rent. I've been having 
endless conversations with retailers lately because we very politely and very patiently talk to comic shops about why they should have more diverse comics and more nonfiction comics. And we keep hearing the same thing from people who are not interested in uh, retailing these kinds of comics. They say, we are barely getting by as it is. The arrangement that we have with our distributor Diamond has us, you know, like we're set up. We've got all the titles that everybody wants. And then we keep hearing that the customer doesn't want that kind of book. Um, The customer wants characters that they know and love. They want Batman. They want Spider-Man. Um, They just want reboots of like all of the things that they've already heard about. And they want toys and swag and like, you know, little baubles. And, you know, even with that, it's just like we're barely making rent. It's like this is the spiel that I hear from like a dozen comic shops a month. And I've gotten to the point where I'm like, I don't want to tell you how to do your job. (laughs) But you are telling me that you are playing by the rules of a formula that is not making your business sustainable. You are following these rules because you feel like this is the way that you sell when maybe what you need to do is figure out this whole other area in comics that is just blowing up and you need to find those customers because you know what? Those customers aren't coming into your store because they don't think that they're going to find anything that is useful right. in your shop. I, I, I don't want to say that I know how to run a comic shop. I like straight up don't. And you know what? I run a business and it's really, really hard. I'm not going to say that um, that I know the ins and outs of different people's businesses or anything like right. that. But I will say that comics are incredibly popular right now. And social justice issues, people are yearn- they're craving educational materials that are fun and accessible. And if you can connect those dots for people, you will have books flying off the shelves. We do great at book fairs. We sell a ton of books to teachers, to social justice activists, to people who are interested in a subject matter, but they, they don't they don't want to pick up a 300-page book about mining companies in Canada. Come and pick up our book. It's 130 pages. It'll give you a crash course in why Canadian mining companies are guilty of some of the worst human rights violations in the world. And you will know about something that you should know about because it's happening with your money, with your CPP contributions every month, which are all invested into Canadian mining companies. These are things that we should know about. And I think a growing number of people feel a sense of responsibility to educate themselves about the world and the issues around them. And comics give you a great way to do that in a way that is on your own terms, uh, on your own time, and can be really inspiring. And I think it's kind of BS that there are no like mainstream comics that are that are socially conscious because true what about image and what they're doing with things like you know bitch planet and and uh, you know like (laughs) even saga and like the politics around the family and that sort of stuff so yeah it's those two titles in particular are probably my two favorite mainstream titles right now i love 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 being able to point people in the direction of storylines that are really hitting it out of the park from a mainstream publisher. And yeah, kudos to Image for uh, for being able to do that. I feel like Bitch Planet is um, especially a good example of how it is time for more titles that want to 
talk about some really serious issues. Beige Planet is incredibly powerful in the imagery, in its nuance, in kind of like the undertones of like this not so distant, hyper patriarchal society. There's a lot to talk about there. Right. And they do like in the Mm -hmm. back, not even just the storyline, but they have people writing in like university professors with like dissertations, Mm -hmm. writing essays to Mm -hmm. like unpack the issues that have happened in the comic that you just read. Like there's analysis happening. Uh, That brings up a good point, actually. I'm glad you brought it up, which is um, comic scholarship, I feel like is an area that is also kind of like indicative of how comics are like blowing up right now. Right. People are building comic studies departments right now. There's so many courses being developed in terms of uh, graphic narrative and sort of the influence of pop culture in general. I just heard on the radio yesterday that uh, I think it's um, University of Saskatchewan is uh, launching its first Zombies A History course. Wow. So kind of obviously there is a pop culture role in that but like what a what a cool course like i would love to take that yeah totally i think we are starting to explore these popular media in a way that um that they deserve like we're giving them the attention that they deserve as um sort of they they move and shake our um opinions of society in a in a really profound way how did we evolve to get this aware like Mm. i feel like i didn't I, I like woke up one day and suddenly people were telling me to check my privilege. You woke up and you were woke. <laughs> to say, uh, yeah. um, that's a really good question. As somebody who really very curious about social movements and how one social movement maybe plays into another, I feel like um, everything is connected. Something that happens before something else can usually inspire it or, or have an effect. I want to think about what was happening in you know, 2008, because I feel like this is around a time that I think a lot of these conversations started to happen. 2007, 2008, what happened in that time? Uh, Twitter uh, started. So all of a sudden, you have this incredible new public forum where people can, you know, post anything that they want, like, you know, like, comics are so full of, you know, cis hetero white men. Am I right? Right. And then all of a sudden, it's like, there's 5000 retweets on that. And it's just like, Oh, wow, people, this is striking a chord. Also around that time, you have the election of Barack Obama in the United States. And I don't necessarily feel I don't want to say that Barack Obama brought about, you know, all of these like progressive conversations. But what I think he did inspire with his election campaign was maybe almost an unprecedented um, amount of hope uh, that uh, that people were sort of, um, you know, like infused with this idea of like, we are going to turn things around, we are going to, we're, we're going to end this war, we're going to end this other war, we're going to fix our roads, we're going to fix our schools, like, it was just this thing where it was like, wow, we have a really long to do list of like things that should be dealt with. Right. And I think that that really activated a lot of people. Um, I've met a ton of people who have been involved in social justice work since volunteering for an Obama election campaign and like they didn't stick around they're like they were they're not members of the democratic party anymore but they got interested in the idea of making change and when they felt like the electoral system had run its course they were like well what else can i do and that whole presidency sort of exposed people to how hard it is to make change and the types of things that he was 
running up against as you saw him try mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. like how things that started out as we're going to make like a universal healthcare situation oh, and gosh. became <laughs> yeah. and had to become in order to, for anything to move you know, a little bit, move the needle a little bit forward, had to be much more minimized and, 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 you know, much more bit by bit than he thought that they would have to be. I feel like this might be an unpopular opinion, but I do feel like pretty much every issue that Obama promised to address somehow got co-opted in the process of executing. Right. Um, now, instead of there being a healthcare system that is impossible to afford that nobody has access to, now it's a mandatory system that you have to pay for whether you have the money or not. Right. Um, you know, instead of um, a, like a ground war of tens of thousands of U.S. troops going into Iraq or Afghanistan, we have a drone program. We literally have drones flying in like six different countries right, right now. Right. There, th- This could go on. I don't necessarily want to make this a, a you know a conversation about American politics, but I do think that some people started to sharpen their teeth around political issues at that time. Fast forward to uh, 2010, 2011. What was happening in 2011? Uh, the Arab Spring popped off. Right. Um, you know, uh, uh, a man in Tunisia is uh, credited with sort of launching the Arab Spring um, by self-immolating, by covering himself in gasoline and lighting himself on fire, and. Um, to protest, you know, the conditions of people in Tunisia. And that just like spread like wildfire. Suddenly you had Tahrir Square. Um, you had an occupation, you know, against a dictatorship of, of tens of thousands of people participating. I don't want to make too much of an intellectual leap, but if we want to talk about people occupying public space for a political goal, you know, Occupy Wall Street happened very shortly after that. And then you had the occupation of parliament buildings in Wisconsin against government Walker. And then you had, I don't know more, and the occupation of spaces all over Canada with round dances and healing circles. And, um, you know, this was happening at around... We had our own process happening in Canada around the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. So right. it, it suddenly became a thing where it was like, wow, we are we are starting to bring these conversations to to a bigger stage. You know, our governments are talking about these things and they're recognizing that they're, they're problems. Right. Let's talk about how it is a problem. Let's do something about that. And that led to a lot of people in a very short period of time uh, getting out into the streets, getting involved in protests, getting involved in um, visuals, having conversations. And we see that that has just continued, you know, with uh, Black Lives Matters um, and with uh, Native Lives Matters. And um, the list goes on and on. And it's really interesting to see how one movement sort of feeds and inspires the next. Right, right. You know, you mentioned before that you that you sort of went to Vancouver at one point in your life. Mm -hmm. And as much as we talk about how like maybe they don't have a dedicated indie comic shop, they sort of are a dedicated indie province and like city and and they like even like even their comic con scene prior to like Fan Expo Vancouver mm. was very grassroots like their heritage hall swap meet sort of stuff and oh i my think gosh the swap meets in Vancouver the, are killer yeah 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 and and i and i think too <laughs> that was the first place that i was exposed to the type of comics that you publish mm. but i was exposed to them by like people in the downtown east side just giving you really like radical pamphlets or like things or like things like that yeah so 
I wanted to ask you sort of um, how does how does Vancouver play into sort of your evolution in, ter- in terms of activism? And then leading off of that, what do the people that make the com- the type of comics that you publish, what do they need? Ooh, those are two really good questions. Let me see if I can answer them. Yeah, I feel like uh, Vancouver, in addition to having like a really interesting sort of DIY indie scene, also has a pretty long history with radical activism. Um, it's called the left coast for a reason. Right. I'm reminded of our first publishing project, which was actually a reprint of a broadsheet cartoon history of British Columbia that I had, uh, you know, I had been hanging on to since an old sort of socialist education class that I was a part of. It is from 1971, which was the anniversary of the, you know, is the centennial of um, British Columbia. And um, it was put out by a socialist youth group in the early 70s. And it's like it, the style is like schoolhouse rock meets like Karl Marx. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, it's like a totally bizarre piece of history in and of itself. And um, so I like to think of how those two things intersect, like how comics and radical politics have have a, a tradition, have a history in Canada. Right. In terms of cool stuff coming out of Vancouver uh, or of BC in general, somebody that I think is a great example of radical comics is um, Gord Hill. Uh, he is an indigenous cartoonist who has done two books now. I think um, one of them's called The Anti-Capitalist Comic Book, and one is called 500 Years of Resistance. And one of them just kind of looks at like, anti-capitalism as like a central focal point of movements over history. And so it kind of just like looks at little snippets in history of um, of those movements. And then the other one is about uh, specifically about mostly armed indigenous resistance to colonization. The books are very short and the writing and the illustrations are super accessible. I've always noticed that when we have them on our table, they're the first books that young kids go for like 10, 11, 12 years old. They just like go straight for the book. I remember when I first looked through it, I was like, I feel like this is like, okay, but I feel like it's almost too accessible. Like you're dealing with history. You know, if I hear that something is 500 years of history of something, I expect like a 500 page book, not like a 100 page book. And then I found out from somebody who was close to um, him when he was going through the process of making these books, that he wanted a book that children on his reserve back home would consider reading um and i was like oh that makes so much sense yeah because like the education is not as good and like you need but also just like how many 500 page books did you read as an eight-year-old kid right like yeah like 60 pages is like a good length for a book about history for a kid totally and so i just want to give a shout out to to gord hill doing really really cool work There are some other uh, comics that I've seen recently. There's an anthology that was put out by a group called the Graphic History Collective. And several of their chapters are by BC artists. One of them is about indigenous longshoremen and the history of their own kind of chapter of the labor movement, um, which doesn't get talked about very much, uh, by Tanya Willard. And uh, there's also another story about sort of like the... uh, 
there's a there's a group called the Industrial Workers of the World. They were a radical labor union that was very prominent in the 1920s and 1930s. And BC was considered like one of their strongholds. It was like a place where you had a lot of socialist union organizers, um, a, a lot of radical workers, um, and a lot of traveling union organizers and workers, like a lot of migrant labor, a lot of um, what they used to call like hobo unionists. They would like travel around from campsite to campsite organizing the workers of like lumber companies and stuff. Um, so there's like a cool comic about that time and place in Vancouver, which is just like an utterly bizarre and like it seems so strange now, but it's like a really, really interesting history by uh, David Lester, who is also a cartoonist in, in Vancouver. Wow. I'm not super tuned into just like the standard indie comics community in Vancouver. I wasn't super into comics when I lived there last, but I do know about some pretty cool coli- like political comics that are that's awesome um, that are in that uh, side of the woods. So to go from like people handing out pamphlets, like you, you know, you getting these sort of activist comics, you know, throughout your life and things that you sort of noticed and are like, oh, I'll take note of that and mm-hmm. and come back to it at some other point. Mm-hmm. Do you, as the publisher of Ad Astra Comics, like give those type of comics like a structure to to publish around like hmm. is it is it a is it a more structured thing like what is your actual job like when you're <laughs> when you're what publishing you yeah like when when you're publishing <laughs> these comics what are you actually doing um yeah that's a good question with the last few projects that we have published and printed the books have already been written we're dealing a lot with material that has just been out of print um, that maybe only worked with a small print run in the past. Maybe the publisher didn't have a ton of money. Maybe there wasn't a lot of interest, didn't know how to market it. I mean, I can relate to that. It's it's a tricky thing, marketing political comic books. Um, we're working with projects that are complete for the most part. That's really great because that gives us an opportunity to just make sure that the printing process looks super great and we can just work on marketing. My job involves having a lot of conversations with people. I do social media. Uh, We like to consider ourselves to be super accessible via Facebook, via Twitter, via Tumblr, all these different things. We like to be able to chat with our fans, with our friends. Um, If people message us being like, do you have a comic about this certain issue? We like to be able to get back to them with like a curated list or, you know, some recommendations. Um, So that's a a piece of it. The other piece is um, we are just constantly reaching out to people who don't work in comics, but who might be interested in social justice comics, uh, whether it's academics or journalists or social justice activists, different people who maybe are interested in the issue that is being discussed in the book that we are putting out, but have never thought that comics would be a suitable medium to talk about that project. That gets a lot of people really excited in comic books. So does that mean that like people that wouldn't normally do comics start thinking about doing comics exactly. about what they're doing? Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's that's absolutely it. Uh, there are a lot of academics out there that have done great work that have devoted their lives and their careers to 
putting out really interesting information that get then gets put into a journal that is, um, you know, sells retail for $120 to libraries and sits on a shelf. Unless and mainstream audiences don't really see it. You don't you don't see your you don't see your work really getting disseminated. And so the appeal of working with comics for academics is just like, it's like, oh, my God, like somebody might read my work. Right, right. <laughs> and it's not to say that what they're writing about isn't interesting. It's super interesting. But, um, you know, most people don't have a subscription to an academic journal. And it has to be made more accessible. It does. To the layman. And that is where a writer comes in. So I have a partner who is a writer and a researcher. He is absolutely amazing at summarizing incredible amounts of information in short, you know, sentences that fit into a couple of panels. Right. So he focuses on writing and research. I focus on, um, I do marketing and social media, but my real focus in the business is art and design. I do layouts for all of our books and I do illustrations for original production. And then we have two other people in the collective, one focused on sales and one focused on our finances, our number wrangling, as she likes to say. Nice. That's awesome. Okay, cool. That gives like a really good picture of sort of what you guys do. Mm -hmm. What influenced you early on in terms of comics? Like what kind of activist things were you involved in? Mm. What kind of comics did you you read when you Mm -hmm. were a kid? Uh, Let me know a little bit about that. Well, I have been pretty interested in history um, pretty much as far back as I can remember. So historical stuff has always appealed to me. I got into kind of like the gritty, you know, anti-hero stuff for a bit. Um, I loved, loved, loved Transmetropolitan. It was one of the first regular subscriptions that I had at a comic shop. I think I started my subscription when I was like 13 and kept it until the end of the series. And I'm so happy I did. It was like an amazing experience. You know, it was that first experience of like, going into the comic shop every week and being like, there is something here for me every week. There is something that I am looking forward to. Uh, I started reading V for Vendetta around the same time. Um, so like anti-hero stuff, but like with political undertones for sure. Right. And then after that, like when I was like 16 or 17, I started to notice the kind of like the activist comic. Not to say that there are a ton of these out there, but just like the ones that I saw really had an impact on me. Um, I saw somebody had made a zine, like a DIY, you know, like printed on Xerox, whatever, printed Mm. at at FedEx, uh, Kinko's of a comic about sanctions on Iraq and the impact of sanctions on Iraq. And this was uh, this was a bigger issue in the 90s, you know, before the war, right, which right. was like so obviously awful. Yeah. After the first Gulf War in the early 90s, there was a ton of leftover arsenal and munitions that were left in Iraq. And in this arsenal and and ammunition is something called depleted uranium. I'm not going to get into the physics of depleted uranium. I don't know enough about depleted uranium. No. Um, but it is it is a highly radioactive substance and it led to an epidemic of birth defects in Iraq. Add to this the fact that there were 13 years of sanctions on Iraq as one of the quote unquote like the measures of, you know, peace after the Gulf War was that Saddam Hussein needed to adhere to these sanctions. And it's just like, you know, I don't know what 
universe of logic our world leaders exist in. But sanctions impact the poorest people in a country. They don't impact the the government, which can ship in, you know, its crates of French wine if they want to. You know what I mean? Yeah, they find a way around it. They find a way around it. And as a result, after 13 years of sanctions, what do you have to say? Is Saddam Hussein less of a tyrant? No, but there are one million people who are dead due to malnutrition or due to a lack of access to, you know, health equipment, etc. So it was a really, really powerful comic. If you can believe it, it was like eight pages, 10 pages long. And it was just like, packed with information. Everything I am saying to you right now about depleted uranium, I know from that eight page comic. Wow. What was it called? Do you remember? I don't know if it had a name at all. You know what? Um, I will send, I have it online. I've scanned it. I will send you the document. And if you want, you can share it on any kind of like website or anything. People can take a look at it. It's, it hasn't been in print for a really long time. I've tried to track down the artist. There's an email address on it that goes to like, you know, Hotmail or some like email account from like 1997. And I've never been able to figure out who the person is. Is that half your job when you want to reprint things like tracking (laughs) down the people that made it? Yeah, it's a big part of our job. We do like if we find comics online that people are sharing that we think are really politically powerful, we will track down the artist to be like, hey, this is really cool. Have you thought about publishing this? Um, And we'll talk to them about what it is we do. And, you know, some people are really interested in that. Some people are just like, no, I'm doing my own thing. And we're like, cool, we'll keep sharing your stuff. Do you like put up the money to get stuff done? Or are Uh, you also just doing like, are you just doing like the marketing or whatever? But are they like, okay, well, we'll republish it. But I, but I, but I need to like fund the print run and do that kind of stuff. It depends on the project. Um, We rely pretty heavily on crowdfunding. We don't have like a war chest. But what we can offer people is, you know, we can show them our track record with other projects. In the past, we have every artist we work with is, um, you know, worked with through the parameters of a contract that lays out their rights and our responsibilities. Everybody gets royalties. I mean, every every artist. I don't get royalties if I'm unless I'm the artist. Artists and writers get royalties. Artists and writers are guaranteed through our contracts to maintain all creative and intellectual rights to their work. That's very important to us. And sometimes uh, we are able to do advances. So with drawing the line, for instance, we were able to give a $1,000 advance to um, the 14 contributors to the project. And that felt really great because we loved the idea of being able to make sure that these guys were getting money in their pockets as a result of helping us share their work. Right, right. That's awesome. We've also done advances in the forms of books. Some people just really, really want to see their book in print, and they would love to be able to sell it wherever they go. And so we're able to give them, you know, $1,000 in royalties up front in the form of books, which is a great deal, in my opinion. Cool. That's really good. Yeah. So... What do you think the future holds? I mean, you do a lot of stuff around like comics journalism and stuff Mm -hmm. too. And I don't think we've had anyone on the podcast yet that has really been involved in that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. What is the sort of importance of comics journalism and like, Mm, what is it for people who aren't exposed, exposed to it? Comics journalism is a really cool category of comics. It's where you have an artist and a writer team, or maybe it's just an artist who also writes, going to an area where there is something happening and just kind of witnessing it and processing it and putting it together in a comic form. 
there are a lot of comics journalists out there right now that, you know, are doing great work. I think the first comics journalist that I became aware of was Joe Sacco. Same. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Joe Sacco is based in the United States, but he's, I think, Maltese by origin. And um, he, in the early 90s, traveled to Israel and Palestine and basically did a tour of many different areas and had conversations with many different people and put out a graphic novel called Palestine. I believe the last time I checked, Palestine is now in its 17th edition. It's just like, wow, yeah, you I- have done very well for yourself. And I know that it was the first book that I picked up about the issue of Palestine. And I just find his artwork to be totally mesmerizing. It's so detailed and so like you just really feel like you're there in the pictures. So he really gave me a sense of like what this what this subgenre was capable of. And then after that, I've I've been finding a bunch of other people's work. Matt Bors is a comics journalist. Josh Newfeld did a great comic about um, uh, called um, New Orleans A.D. or New Orleans After the Deluge, which is about Hurricane Katrina. Ted Rawl, I mentioned earlier, went uh, to Afghanistan and wrote a graphic novel about it. Uh, Sarah Glidden wrote How to Understand Israel in 60 Days. Uh, Guy Delisle, who is uh, a Canadian comics journalist, has been to Pyongyang in North Korea, did one about Jerusalem. So calling yourself a comics journalist, other than the parameters of doing journalism in a comics form... That's really about it. Lots of people do different styles and lots of people have different approaches and different opinions, too, which I think is really important to mention. And it's uh, something that I think we're only going to see more of. It it really appeals to people. And why people should care is because comics themselves can sort of bring more light to an issue just as a medium Mm -hmm. than than other ways of doing journalism and i think that's why some journalists choose comics as their as their method of telling of telling a story because Mm -hmm. with illustration you can you can say more and Mm -hmm. expose people to more yeah that sort of thing i'm not sure if we are really aware you know, I don't expect when people are reading a news article online or, you know, watching a news piece on TV, I'm not sure if anybody else is really having like a conversation with themselves about how incredibly curated um, the content is. I think we have this idea that, you know, journalism is objective and journalism is like we are just being given, you know, the straight dope about what is happening. And um, one of the criticisms that I have heard about comics journalism is just that it's like, it's biased or that it's like opinionated. And my thinking around that is just that like, I feel like all journalism is opinionated opinionated. and comics journalism for, if anything is just kind of more self-aware of that. I I always have the sense that when I am reading comics journalism, that I am very clearly seeing through the eyes of the comics journalist. And that is a thing that I like to, I like to be reminded of that when I am reading about journalism, because it's always important to remember that there are multiple sides to a story. Right. And I just kind of feel like that is a, I, th- I think it's a cool thing about it. I'm I, just to use an example of um, one of the other benefits of comics journalism is how quickly it can, it can be produced. You know, there were comics journalists at the Republican National Convention in Cleveland this year, putting up comics, you know, every 24 hours, there were 
comics journalists at the Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia, which happened one week later, putting out comics. Sophie Yano, who's a cartoonist, a comics journalist in the States, uh, just did a piece on the Standing Rock protest against the Dakota pipeline that is slated to be built through um, indigenous land in the United States. She just put out a short comic about that. And it's like, it doesn't look scripted. It doesn't look nobody. Nobody is posing in her in her graphics. It's like it's pictures of like people passing pots of soup down a fire line to you know people who need soup. It's like people digging through their bags for a pen for an interview. It's like just kind of like naked and like transparent images from this epicenter of a social struggle happening right now. And I think that that's super cool. Interesting. Yeah. I want to ask you, do you take any kind of heat for what you do just because it is sort of activist-y and it has sort of like sort of the things that you publish are sort of a little more radical than people might be used to? I don't want to invite any criticism that I haven't already received, but surprisingly not. Uh, I can only suppose that people take one look at us and they're just like, no, I'm not going to mess with that. (laughs) You know, like we are so clearly like a, a politically charged collective that, you know, if people want to... I just like don't even know what people would say to us, you know, like you're wasting your time. That business never is never going to work. You're not making money. It's like I'm making money. Actually, I'm doing pretty well. And that's not because I'm like, you know, scraping off the cream of the production here. It's like these comics are selling well. And that's a really good thing. And I feel great about it. So surprisingly not. No, I haven't. You know, it's weird because it's like. I'm on Reddit, I'm on Imgur, I'm on lots of social media where it's like people, experience, particularly women, I want to say, experience a lot of trolling and a lot of harassment. And right. I'm fortunate to say that I haven't uh, I haven't had to experience that. That's really good. I did. Li- I was very interested in how you talked about how you're sort of the conversations you have with retailers and sort of bumping up against mainstream comics as mm-hmm. an independent comic publisher. Can you tell me a little bit more and give me some more examples of how what that conversation has been like and what that tension has been like? I want to emphasize that I feel like that is a healthy conversation that's happening. Right. It really doesn't even feel like we're bumping heads often. I mean, okay. we have different ideas of how to do business and we have different ideas of the direction that the comic book industry should go. But I love having those conversations. I love it when comic shop retailers are able to confide in our collective what their challenges are. You know, I, I want to see the comic shop thrive in North America. Right. So with that being said, you know, it kind of depends on where we are. Sometimes we will walk into a shop and we will just immediately know we're just like, no, this is not where our stuff will sell. It's, you know, this is this is a man cave, as sometimes as we say it. You know, it's it's a shop where you can tell that there is not there 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 doesn't seem to be any attempt or any interest at having an attempt at um including women or queer or diverse voices beyond Tanahisi Coates and Black Panther, which is like, by the way, an awesome comic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> not gonna say that that's uh, the fact that that even huge, happened is so, not a is huge so shocking. Win, win. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm I'm super stoked that that comic is is out there and in shops right now, and I hope they sell a million copies. With that being said, uh, there are some comic shops that have forever and will forever just sell those single issue mainstream comics. 
Sometimes we uh, talk with people who are interested in appealing more to teachers, and they don't know how to do that. Some people are interested in having more comics that appeal to kids and have an educational flavor to them, which, you know, the, the kids are happy and the parents are happy. For us, it is a part of our ongoing process where you remember when I started this conversation, I was asking like, what do different people need? Right. You know, like what do comic creators need? Right. They need a publisher that knows how to advocate for them. They need a publisher that is going to give them royalties and help them secure their intellectual and creative rights. They need somebody to liaise with a printer or lay out their book. We feel like we have done that. And now we are trying to devote care and time to the what do retailers need piece. Right. We have had some incredible retailers give us what is decades of uh, in the making insights about how their stores work. A lot of the things that really successful comic shops have told us is that community is the most important thing. If you have a comic shop that feels like it is the center of a community, you will always have people coming and getting comics from you. And we've really tried to take that piece of insight to heart and think about how we can contribute to that idea of building a community around a comic shop. Um, whether it's, you know, uh, a comic shop that we visited in a mall in inner city Atlanta that offers all ages um, D&D after school. You know, that's a thing that the kids love. That's a thing that the parents love because they know where their kids are after school. You know, they know that they're hanging out with kids their age and that they're, you know, happy and doing something exciting. Maybe it's at, um, you know, uh, the comic shop Atlantis in Santa Cruz, which has been around. I think the way that Joe, the owner, likes to say it, he was like, we opened our doors two months before Star Wars opened. And we are so happy that we <laughs> decided to go into business around the time that Star Wars launched. Because, uh, yeah, uh, that's when nerd culture really popped <laughs> off. That's awesome. Great guy. Super cool guy. He helped to design the Eisner Award around a retail business and he was able to tell us you know what works for his store what's kept him in business for decades building community it's being there for the artists being there for the writers organizing book signings um, getting out into the community and encouraging people to you know show up at like a cosplay event or you know knowing your customers by name these kinds of questions are important for the building of community and so moving forward with that we want to continue to have this conversation about how these comics can help to build that community in a productive and you know mutually agreeable way for everyone involved that's awesome and yeah. then at the same time getting the books that you publish into those into the into those shops ideally yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome that's yeah. so cool yeah all right um, yeah, that's that's so good. Um, is there anything else that we haven't touched on that you that you want to talk about? I would love to just say thank you to um, my co-organizers of the book launch that we did yesterday. Okay. So in releasing Extraction, uh, the anthology about mining companies by comics journalists, uh, we teamed up with some mining justice groups. Um, so basically groups that function as a watchdog of mining companies that look for corporate accountability, that do 
investigations and consultations with communities that have been impacted by mining, um, basically human rights organizations. We've teamed up with two for the launch of this book. Um, in Ottawa, we did a book launch with Mining Watch, which is um, a great, great nationwide group that uh, really puts out a lot of uh, useful reports and studies about mining. We did our book launch with them and 50% of all the proceeds went to them and their work. And last night in Toronto, we did a launch with Mining and Justice Solidarity Network, which is a similar organization, but I would say they're a little bit more direct action oriented. Like they're a little bit more like, let's show up at this shareholder meeting and let's um, invite some people up from this village in Guatemala that was impacted by this mining company. And let's uh, get the CEO of this company to listen to these mothers talk about what happened in their community wow. as a result of this gold mine. Yeah, Jesus. some pretty like interesting stuff. They are an incredible group. And last night, we had an amazing event uh, right across the street from the Beguiling. It was awesome. Uh, we sold out of books. I brought, I, I don't know why I only brought 60 copies of the book. I, we sold like maybe 25 copies at our book launch in Ottawa. And I was like, even if we do twice as well, it's like, I'll still have enough books. We sold out. So that was really, really awesome. Um, people were really digging the comic format. This is like a lot of the people who came out to the event are like more kind of interested in the social justice side of things. And they've never, like a lot of them have never read a comic before. Right. And so they just like think that this is the coolest thing since sliced bread. And um, people were, you know, buying stacks of books for like Christmas presents and stuff like that. It was um, it was so great. And I just really want to thank MISN for organizing it and for everybody who came out. It was such a blast. What's next for you? What's next for Ad Astra? But like more, what's next for you? Like, what do you want to, where do you want to take this? I feel like my role in the business has been evolving basically since the beginning. I would like to be taking a step back from the marketing uh, side of things and um, just focusing on design and illustration. I want to be like laying out books, getting them to the printer as quickly as possible and having enough time to work on my own stuff because I am uh, picking up contracts as an illustrator now um, in addition to all the publishing work. So in the next couple of months, uh, we're going to be going on tour again. Uh, we are driving down to Atlanta for the Atlanta Radical Book Fair, October 15th. And um, either before that event or after that event, we're going to be doing a book launch with Seth Tabachman in New York City, which is like, I can check that uh, milestone off my list. I'm going to be doing a book launch in New York. Awesome. And all the while that this is happening, I'm going to be working on a, a contracted project with um, somebody from the Indigenous Studies Department at the University of Manitoba. They have spent a lot of their career recording the impact of hydroelectric dam development in the province and how it has negatively impacted the indigenous communities there. Manitoba is full of like hundreds and hundreds of indigenous Cree communities. Mm -hmm. The Cree are water people. An important part of their economy, of their culture, of their way of life is based on um, the rivers running beside them or around them. And um, 
the construction of um, about a dozen hydroelectric dams has drastically altered the landscape of the province. And so we are going to be doing a graphic novel um, in consultation with the university and the communities to talk about this multi-generational evolution of um, uh, of, of the, these changes, these huge changes in the province. So we're super excited to be working on that. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. And like, what kind of things are you drawing? You said that mm. you have pe- things that you want to do and like, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, I mean, um, I'm doing my paid illustration work, which is super cool. I, I love it. Um, I'm also trying to find time to do other stuff. So I like to do historical comics. And I also want to find a little more time to do some autobiographical comics. Um, I want to make a graphic memoir about my time in Vancouver as a social justice activist, um, which I think has some, I don't want to give away too much, but let's just say it's, it, it, there's some scandal involved. Really? Uh, <laughs> there's some intrigue. And uh, I feel like there are a lot of lessons. There are a lot of lessons to talk about um, when we talk about um, the struggles that we're involved in. So I'm looking forward to to passing those on. That's awesome. When you were, I mean, you've been involved in social justice for a long time. And this is, you know, this whole comics thing is just another part of that. Do you see actual change happening as a result as a result of your efforts or does it get kind of exhausting or mm. or both because there's always people don't know that like whether what they're doing is actually going to have an impact mm-hmm. and there's there's so many issues out there that sometimes it's sort of like the whack-a-mole of like what's totally. the next thing and you know people get sort of exhausted about you know the next cause and the next thing that they Absolutely. contribute to so how do you respond to that like do you do you see change in the stuff that Ed Astra is doing and I am always engaging in a process of asking myself these questions. I'm always trying to think about how my organizing can be sustainable, how it can remain inspired. And I feel like the comics have really assisted with that. I feel like there is a a certain amount of work that goes into it, work that is tedious, work that is not necessarily the most enjoyable thing. Um, But there's a great deal of feeling of, of gratification that comes with Um, producing a piece of culture or producing mass producing a person's story that can then be passed on to thousands of people Um, that feels incredible to be a part of that um, sort of that link wow there are so many ways that I feel like I could respond to that question I will answer it in the way that I would assume that people who listen to this podcast are maybe asking themselves similar questions you know how do I how do I stay passionate about the things that I'm passionate about? How do I keep them sustainable? How do If I have strong opinions about a social justice issue, how do I not burn myself out or demoralize, essentially, around that issue? I want to say that that is maybe f- figuring that out is, if this is an important thing for you, figuring that out might be one of the most important questions of your entire life. And you should take it really seriously and figure out how you can make your work sustainable. Um, For me, it has meant cutting out the things in my life that contribute to my demoralization, (laughs) Um, you know, uh, uh, surrounding myself with um, a good feeling of uh, community, people who also want to be involved in creating art or um, creating social change, really being checked in about my mental health 
uh, is very important to me these days. Right. Um, making sure that I'm taking care of myself. Like many people in this city, I deal with uh, anxiety and depression. And uh, uh, making art has been a really therapeutic part of that, uh, of processing and, uh, and kind of mediating those things. The activism that I was involved in in the past felt like a lot of wheel spinning. It felt like a lot of work with not a lot of reward. And I think a part of that is that oftentimes we find ourselves doing activist work that, um, uh, that appeals to us, but maybe doesn't appeal to other people. So, you know, if you're at a rally and you hear somebody speaking on the megaphone and you see that nobody is like totally feeling engaged by like listening to that person on the megaphone, it's like maybe that person is speaking more to like hear the sound of their own voice, you know, right. like and that really does that happens in a lot of different aspects of our lives. But it happens a lot in social justice organizing where sometimes it's about how activism makes us feel. It, it projects a certain self-image. Sometimes you need a more, I want to say, ecological, not ecological, symbiotic approach. You know, if you are engaging in something, it is good to know that other people are gaining energy or inspiration from that uh, experience so that you can sort of feed off of each other's energies. I feel like I'm like starting to talk like a hippie if I'm talking about feeding off of energies. But I think it's important. I think that it's good to know that my art is therapeutic for me. And it's good to know that other people can pick it up and it can be an important, an important starting point for somebody else. So it feels like it's beneficial for both of us. And it's important because you have to check the barometer of the room. Right. It's so important. And yeah. I feel like it doesn't happen as much as it should with social justice organizing. I feel like we tell ourselves, look, we're all here. We all care about this issue. So like, I don't care if this like forum is boring, like we should just do it. It's like, no, dude, your forum is fucking boring. And like, you need to find another way to engage with people because you are putting us to sleep. Yeah. Um, We need to start coming up with creative initiatives for how to deal with the world's problems. And I think that comics is just one piece of it. I think that video games have so much to offer in this regard, not to start a whole other subject. <laughs> um, I think that um, podcasts are a really important part of it. Um, people are trying different things right now, and it's so inspiring to start to be a part of this growing community of innovative media having these conversations. So Right, right. Because, I mean, activists get pigeonholed too like you know there's the mm -hmm. whole oh an activist like everybody feels like they've heard that story right totally yeah so it's it's it it sucks when it that um reputation ends up being true <laughs> like sometimes <laughs> i feel like it is and i you know i we spend a lot of time because all of us at, at astra are like activists or former activists and it's just like if you want to hear some people grumble about how awful activism is meet some activists who have been around the block a few times like we are tired of that crap right. <laughs> we are tired of going to rallies where it's like there are literally millions of people in the world that uh, agree that the war in Iraq should be over. But like this rally has like 45 people at it, you know, like that feels kind of demoralizing. Right. What are we doing wrong? Why aren't we reaching people? Maybe this format isn't working and we should try something else. Right, right. Exactly. So. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. Where can people find you? Uh, so our website is still functional, still full of reviews and resources. It's at adastracomics.com. I'm going to spell it out because Ad Astra is Latin, so I wouldn't expect everyone to know how we spell it, but it's A-D-A-S-T-R-A-C-O-M-I-C-S. 
C-O-M-I-X dot com. And uh, whatever you're looking for, uh, we have a phrase that uh, there's a comic for that. So if you're looking for a comic about a certain subject, punch it into the search engine and see if we've got anything on the website. Uh, we're also on Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, and Instagram. And uh, we love hearing from people. So if you want to just talk with us about comics, send us an email. Awesome. It's been great having you in. I feel like we could have endless conversations about this sort of thing. You're you're one of the most endlessly fascinating people that I ever interview. Wow, thank so, you. <laughs> because because there's so many different places that you can take it's, this it's and so, so many different things that I want to know about about you and your story and and the whole thing, but we'd be here for hours. Every so. time we meet, I feel like we're talking endlessly about a whole other section. So, I mean, it gives me something to look forward to next time. Totally, totally. Cool. All right, guys, so uh see you next time on Speech Bubble. This has been Speech Bubble. See you in the future, friends. 